we have exciting things going on in our church, and April 2nd, we have the historic opportunity to vote, to change our name to LifeBridge Baptist Church. I am so excited about that. That name contains a redeeming message for lost people that we can launch into the gospel and a compelling mission for us as a church. And so today, we've asked uh, Todd to come. I'm so thankful for Todd. He does a wonderful, outstanding job with our praise team. What we just led is due to his leadership by God's grace. And so, Todd, we're thankful for you and all that you do, and, and even more so your wife who helps us with finances and all those good things. And so, Todd, come on up here and share your testimony. If you heard any snickering as Chris said that, that would be everybody on the praise team with musical talent because I don't have any. So, but thank you, Chris. And the team does do a phenomenal job in spite of me. Um, I've worked in marketing for 15 years for an insurance company, and the, the hardest and most detestable thing that we do, and the job everyone hates, is coming up with names. Um, new products, new organizations, new programs, they all need names. Uh, names that are supposed to be unique, creative, perfectly communicate what they are naming, and all management must love it. A standard that no name has yet ever reached. But there are some things that I've learned in coming up with names over the years. First of all, every name has already been used. It's been used by somebody, somewhere, in some context. There is nothing new under the sun. But therefore, we cannot be burdened by the reality that we are not going to be the first one to come up with an idea for a name we want to use. While not wanting to use names that are overused or readily known in our context, it's simply rare to come up with something that no one else has. And the other lesson I've learned is whatever name you come up with, not everyone will like it. Therefore, we don't pick names only best based on personal preferences and emotional reactions because preferences and emotional reactions can vary significantly. Rather, we choose names based on defined criteria and really their ability to help us achieve our goals, which in my business is to make money. Um, the key to an effective name is the name of having a good story, is, is that name having a good story. There, therefore, we want a name that leads us into the story of who we are or what we are selling. That's what we've, I've learned in marketing. And the reality is that really applies very, very well to what we're doing in terms of coming up with a name for Glenwood. We want to change the name from Glenwood Baptist Church to LifeBridge Baptist Church. And because of what I have learned over the past 15 years, I can get very, very excited about LifeBridge Baptist Church. Because while LifeBridge is not perfectly unique, it is unique in our community. It's rarely used for churches, and it's not overused in other contexts. It's a good name in that aspect. Also, while not everyone may fall in love with LifeBridge as a name right away, it is a name that meets the criteria we worked from as a leadership council, and it meets the needs in terms of uh, trying to achieve the goals and purposes of our church. It does what we need it to do. So regardless of my or your emotional reactions or personal preferences, it meets those criteria and it moves us forward in our purposes as a church. But I'll tell you what I get most excited about, and that is that the name LifeBridge 
is the way it fits our message and our mission. It's got a great story behind it. See, while not blatant and obvious necessary, life bridge, but it's not blatant and obvious, but to describe life bridge is to talk about the source of life in Jesus and is to talk about our goal of bridging people to him. Just sharing the name of LifeBridge can create an opportunity to share the gospel. The name supports, the name even expands on our purposes of a church to know Christ, grow in Christ, show Christ, and to go with Christ. Obviously, sharing the gospel has far more significance than selling life insurance, and thank goodness. That's the purpose by which I live, is the purposes that God has given us. But the lessons apply. The name LifeBridge can be a long-term effective tool in this body of believers to help us move forward in fulfilling the mission God has called us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, creator God, loving master, you have provided the great redeemer in Jesus Christ. You have called us to yourself to be in your kingdom, in your family, and to do your will. You have given us a purpose that is greater than any other reason for living. You have given us a mission that is more important than any other mission we could move towards. You have called us to the ministry of reconciliation. You've called us to make disciples, to proclaim the glory of your name. We ask for forgiveness where we, where we failed, where we failed to live out this mission as as individuals where we have failed to live out this mission as a church. But God, we, we ask as we pursue changing the name of our assembly that this process would bring us together. We ask it would bring us together because of a greater passion and a greater purpose and a greater focus towards your mission. And now, God, we bow before you, and we bow before your purposes as your word is preached, we ask that we would keep our hearts humble and open. We ask you to break through our pride so that we can hear and obey your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, it's been good today. Amen. You alone have the power to redeem. Fits perfectly with Daniel chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see that God is large and in charge. Even when we don't know it or are slow to show it in our attitudes and actions. God is large and in charge even when we don't know it or are slow to show it in our attitude and actions. God's given us Daniel chapter 4 to teach us this lesson. And the entire chapter repeatedly emphasizes this one truth. Our God is large and in charge over all things in heaven and on the earth. In other words, this entire chapter, Daniel chapter 4, is about God's sovereignty. Now... A dictionary definition of sovereignty would be something like this. Sovereign means chief or highest, supreme in power, superior in position, independent of, and unlimited by anyone else. 
Thus, you're going to see in this chapter repeatedly, God is called the Most High. Okay, you say, I can't remember that dictionary definition. You can remember this. He is most high and absolutely free. The meaning of sovereignty could be summed up in this way. To be sovereign is to possess supreme power and authority so that one is in complete control and can accomplish whatever he pleases. In the great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says this, God's sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. Tozer goes on to say that God is absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases always, everywhere, forever. To be thus free means also that he possesses universal authority and unlimited power. In other words, as I would like to say, God is large and in charge. He is subject to none influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. None can thwart Him, none can hinder Him. But, is that what the Bible really teaches? And I would put forth to you this morning, yes, it does. And one of the best places to see it is here in Daniel chapter 4. In fact, one of the best proofs of this is found on the lips of of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. How ironic that God's greatest definition of sovereignty is found on the lips of one of the most cruelest, meanest, most vicious men in all of history. Look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Then towards the end of the chapter, look at verses 34 and 35. This same king, this pagan king, has this to say. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward His hand. They can't stop Him or say to Him, What have you done? They can't hold Him accountable. And then finally, the last verse in this chapter, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. 
Now that designation, king of heaven, is unique. It's unique in the Bible, and it's found on the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you're the king of heaven, that means you're the king of all things. You're large and in charge. This chapter is about one thing. How the greatest earthly king that has ever lived, King Nebuchadnezzar, came to know and to show that the king of heaven is large and in charge, even over him and over his kingdom. The first four chapters of the book of Daniel have introduced us to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's about to leave the scene of the, of the book of Daniel. This is his last appearance. But all through the process, the Most High God has been teaching the people of Israel, and therefore also us, the people who know their God, as well as people like Nebuchadnezzar who did not know God, teaching them a few things. In Daniel 1, we were taught that God is large and in charge in a way that's far wiser than human wisdom. Daniel and his compatriots were ten times wiser for having known God. In Daniel 2, we are taught God is large and in charge in a way that's more powerful than earthly powers can ever accomplish. We saw the image of the earthly kingdoms and how the coming kingdom crushed it to dust. And then in Daniel 3, we see that God is large and in charge in a way that's far greater than human authority can even imagine. You can throw them in a fiery furnace and they come out not even smelling like smoke. What about Daniel 4? And what does this have to do with us? Well, here's what Daniel 4 is going to help us do. Thrive in Babylon. Because you see, if you're going to thrive in Babylon, thriving in the last days has much more to do with knowing who is large and in charge than it does with just making personal decisions. In fact, I would put forth to you this morning, you won't make the courageous, uncompromising choices that these men have been making in these chapters if you do not know who your God is. In fact, Daniel 11, verse 32, my favorite verse in, these, in this book, says this, The people who know their God will display strength and take action. That's just good stuff. So once again, at the book, in the book of Daniel, it moves from courageous choices in Daniel 3, in the midst of the fiery furnace, to reminding us that that's rooted in knowing who your God is, that He's large and in charge over all things. And the answer to this question of who is large and in charge is repeated at least four times in this book. As you move through this chapter, I'm sorry, through this chapter, as you move through it, the answer of who is large and in charge is found in the dream's revelation. Look at verse 17. The dream's revelation. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have another dream, and here's what he's going to see in the dream. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's answered for us, who is large and in charge, in Daniel's interpretation of the dream, in verses 24 and 25. 
In verse 24, Daniel says, this is the interpretation. And in verse 25, he says this, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It's answered for us from the voice of heaven and its declaration in verses 31 through 32. Look at verses 31 and 32. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling base will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time, seven years, will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar learns the lesson, and he answers it in his proclamation, which we just read. He answers it in the verse three verses which we've read, and he answers it in the last two verses that he speaks. So, how can we survive, or rather, how can we thrive instead of just survive in the end times that we're in and the days grow darker? Compromise is increasing. Even people who claim to know God are losing their courage to witness to the exclusivity of Christ? Well, the answer is we need to know that our God is large and in charge. So let me bring it down to a little more personal level, perhaps. What are you struggling with this morning in terms of God's sovereignty? Who is ruling over you in a proud and unjust and unmerciful way? Is it a boss? Or a spouse, if it's a spouse, don't look at them right now. Who or what is causing you to question whether God, the God who has saved you, is still large and in charge? Perhaps a disease, a diagnosis, or a death of a loved one. How is your own pride hindering you from humbling yourself before the Creator of all things to simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. What seems to be so all-powerful and almighty in your life right now that it's causing your faith to waver and your courage to shrink before it? And maybe how has pride puffed you up so much that you're actually mocking God this morning, mocking His people in your heart, and scoffing at the authority of the preaching and the teaching of His Word. You see, Daniel 4 is going to help us to not only know God is large and in charge, but to show it by submitting ourselves to His sovereignty. So first what we're going to do is kind of read through the story. Read through the story and kind of outline that story, and then see four implications from that story. So let's dive in here. And the, the question again as you read through this chapter, who is really large and in charge? And so the, the, start, the story begins in verses 4 through 18. So look at that. Verses 4 through 18, we see the nightmare of being cut down to size. The nightmare of being cut down to size. Now, the first thing we're going to learn in this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar is a slow learner. 
Okay? This is the second dream. Uh, the first one should have been enough. The, uh, the uh, occasion of the fiery furnace should have been enough. But here he is again. But that's okay, because by nature, we are all slow to learn that God is God and we are not. In spite of all that he's already seen, the God of Israel do, we find him in verse 4, sitting at ease and flourishing in his palace. In other words, he's secure and successful, and he's thinking to himself, I am large and in charge over my kingdom. But then in verse 5, God graciously interrupts his proud sense of security with another terrifying dream. Look at verse 5. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful, just like the first one. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. God is graciously repeating him, repeatedly giving him this dream to wake him up and to reveal his pride. And once again, this proud man is slow to learn that worldly wisdom cannot see life from God's perspective. So you would think, who should he be calling? Daniel, who does he call? The magicians, the Babylonian wise men. And the wise men come, and what does worldly wisdom do when it, when it, it tries to see life from God's perspective? What happens? They have nothing to offer. And so in verses eight and, uh, 6 and 7, they have nothing to offer. And once again, in verses 8 and 9, Daniel is called in to save the day because even this pagan king knew that there was a spirit of the holy gods, as he would say, in Daniel that made him wiser than worldly wisdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to tell Daniel the terrifying nightmare. Let's take a look at it in verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. It's a tree of life. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelled in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted and spoke as follows. Now, when heavenly messengers shout in your dreams, the message is not going to be good. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage. Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze, symbolic of judgment, around it, in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched and with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. We'll see that that's seven years. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. 
and sets over it the lowliness of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now the story continues with Daniel's interpretation in verses 19 through 27. And in his interpretation, we see the warning to repent before it's too late. The warning to repent before it's too late. Because you see, Daniel's interpretation is simple. You are the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, and the tree represents your majesty and the authority and the glory of your kingdom. And so it's simple, but then it's straightforward. The interpretation is straightforward and it's sovereign. You will be cut down to size by divine decree. You will be cut down to size by divine decree. We see this in verses 23 through 24. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation of the dream. O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you may be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat, the cattle, the grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever it wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is in heaven, that it is in heaven, that it is heaven that rules. Now, Daniel's interpretation of this dream is really startling. For seven years, you will live and look like an animal. Okay? That's pretty that that's night that's that's the stuff that nightmares are made of. Okay? And Daniel's interpretation is startling because uh, well modern science says that this could be the disease called boanthropy, which simply means people basically lose their mind, they eat grass and they live like animals. Okay? What we know for sure is that in his sovereignty, God has declared that for seven years, this proud king will be humbled to the lowest levels, living like a beast in the field. Now, the lesson is clear. To be too proud to submit to the Most High is total insanity. The lesson is also clear that to reject the sovereignty of God is to be no better than a senseless animal. This is startling for a couple reasons. First of all, just imagine, I mean, Daniel's freaked out because this guy's going to be living like an animal for seven years. But Daniel is also startled for another reason because look at verse, look at verse 19. 
He says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for for, for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. He was as scared as Nebuchadnezzar was. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's like, look, this is so wild. This is so freaky and frightening that it's happening to you. But it's also scary and frightening to Daniel because he cared for Nebuchadnezzar. His captor. This lost, brutal, cold-blooded, pagan king. Daniel says, this is going to be so bad, I wish it upon your enemies. Now to me, that's startling. Because of how much Daniel cared for lost people who don't know God. Rather than gleefully and joyfully in his heart thinking, this bad dude's finally getting his. Too bad it's only seven years. He says, oh king, I can't even talk it. I can't even speak about it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, it's okay, Daniel, tell me, tell me what it is. Oh, I wish wish it was on your enemies. That's how compassionate this man was for lost people. And I think he also had a compassion and a concern for God's people. Because as this king went, so went God's people. Because he was the conqueror of God's people. So let me ask you this morning, in light of all that's going on in our nation, Is yours and mine compassion for lost people increasing or decreasing? Is our concern really for God's people as much as it is for agendas, issues, and politics? You see, Daniel's heart was sensitive to the needs of this lost man. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, he's saying to to Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself like a man or become a crazy grass-eating beast. Now, verse 28 is a pivot to the third part of the story. And it moves us forward one entire year. Notice verses 28 and 29. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. And what we're going to see in verses 28 and 33 is that pride, the pride that comes before a fall. The pride that comes before a fall. He's on his rooftop, verse 29, and notice what King Nebuchadnezzar does. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This does not bode well. 
This does not bode well. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like he was a cow, and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. It's like a horror story, okay? Notice four things. I want you to notice four things. First of all, notice where Nebuchadnezzar was standing. He was standing on a rooftop. Why? Because most likely this was the highest place in the kingdom. And high places were often associated with the dwelling place of gods. All right? And standing on this high tower saying what a great guy he was, was simply a replay of the Tower of Babel that was built in that same area. Remember, they, let's make a tower up to the heavens so that we can make a great name for ourselves? There's something about that area of Iraq and Iran, and, 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 and we need... Wow. Okay, so we see where he's at. Secondly, I want you to see what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing. And I have some slides that will come up. He's seeing the glory of Babylon the Great that he built. He was right. He built it. And Babylon was like this massive modern-day city with rivers going through it and roads going through it. And it was marvelous. And it had the hanging gardens. A slide here of the hanging gardens that he built for his queen, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Honey, what do you want for your anniversary? How about one of the... There's only six wonders out there. I'd like to have a seventh one. Okay. Okay, let me build the hanging gardens. And the city had two walls that protected the city that were so massive. The outer wall was 11 feet thick. Now, you just got to understand, this is all built by hand, 11 feet thick, and the inner wall was like 21 feet thick. Now, I'm not a transportation guy, but I think that's like a double-lane highway, you know, around the place. A couple, uh, quite a few chariots could line up on that. The streets were not paid with gold, but they were paid with paved with proud boastings of Nebuchadnezzar. Each street had its own name, and the most distinguished street was called The Enemy Shall Not Prevail. And this street led from the Ishtar, the gate of Ishtar, which has been re-replicas have been built, and you can see it there with beautiful blue tile and, and lions all up and down this paved street, which is going to be important next week. And along this paved highway, this road was 40 to 50 feet wide, paved with stone. I mean, that's like a four-lane highway wide. And some of the stones had this written on the stone. So, the enemy shall not prevail. And you're walking and you look down at this stone and you read this inscription. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I've paved the road of Babylon with mountain stone for the procession of the mighty lord Marduk. May Marduk, my Lord, grant me eternal life. 
Wow. Now notice what King Nebuchadnezzar was saying. He's looking out over this massive glory, this massive city that, is, that has been built to make a name for himself. And look at what he's saying. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Well, also notice in this section how swiftly God's judgment finally falls. While the word, I mean, he's not even getting this out of his mouth. He didn't even finish it all, because there was more to say about my greatness. And before the words were out of his mouth, the voice of heaven comes and says, what I forewarned you has come upon you. And the time of repentance is over. And it says in verse 33, immediately the word. One moment, he was the proudest, most powerful man on the planet. In the next moment, he's an animal in the field. Doesn't have his own reasoning. Eating grass, growing his fingernails, growing his hair. And Proverbs 16, 18 is written all over this. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low. Finally, we come to the end of the story, which is good news. And that is the exaltation of the humble. The exaltation of the num uh, humble. Aren't you glad that Proverbs 11 and Proverbs 29 don't, just don't talk about the proud and their destruction? Proverbs 11:2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29:3, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord. In due time, He will lift you up. First, we see His humility before God's sovereignty. Look at verses 34 and 35. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason was returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion, see how the, it's now third person. The first person has been cleansed. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as accounted as nothing, including me. But He does according to His will, not only in the heavens, but here on all the earth. And no one can stop his hand. I couldn't do it, and I'm the most powerful man on the planet. Or say to him, what have you done? You're wrong. You're unjust. You're unfair. That wasn't the wisest thing you could have done. Wow. And then we see the exaltation of the humble in verses 36 through 37. At that time, my reason returned to me. 
and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. Once again, people were looking to him for leadership. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are true, and His ways are just, and He, He is able to humble those who walk in pride. I know He did it to me. Wow. Wow. So what, does, what do we learn from that story? We learn this, that we show that we know. We show that we know that the Most High is large and in charge when we humble ourselves. It's when we humble ourselves before Him as the King of heaven. So I beg of you this morning, if you get nothing more, then please heed James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So, that makes for a great story, doesn't it? Was that a good story? Did you enjoy that? I mean, that, this, this chapter's begging for a movie title, right? I mean, if Jane Austen was writing this, it'd be called Pride and Punishment, right? Did you, hey, good. I said pause for laughter in my notes. So that, 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 it's always good when that happens. It's always good. So it, never, it doesn't always happen downstairs, but you're a better crowd up here. Now, if Disney was making this, it would be From Beauty to the Beast, right? And the sequel would be Back to Beauty, right? And if the Food Channel was doing it, it'd be from Caviar to Crabgrass, right? And if the Country, uh, country Living Channel, it would be from Palace to Pasture, right? Okay, that's the best I can do. I can't do anymore. So, what lessons are we to learn? So, let me give you four implications. The message is clear. Our God is large and in charge. Can I get an amen? amen. Now, there's implications for all of us. First of all, this is reassuring for the humble who know their God. Amen? See, this was a message. Here's, a, here's God's people in captivity, enslaved, being, having to be a part of a culture they want nothing to do with, and God is reassuring them that though I have allowed this king to discipline you because of your sin, don't you doubt for a minute that I'm not large and in charge and I can do with this man whatever I please. You don't have to panic. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to start marching in the streets. You don't have to write nasty things on your social media. I've got it under control. Good. Is that good? That's good. You see, no matter, no matter who's ruling on earth, the Most High God is ruling in heaven over all things. Now, I, I want to be serious. I want you to, I want this to be moved into your hearts. Maybe you're still not happy over how the election turned out, but God is still large and in charge. And no matter who is ruling on this earth or how screwed up they make it, the Most High God is ruling in heaven over all things. Amen? Maybe you have a boss that's driving you nuts, and literally you're like, maybe being eaten grass might be better than working here. 
God is still large and in charge, no matter who's over you on this earth. The Most High God is over all things. Look, if Daniel can work for Nebuchadnezzar, I think you can work for whoever you're working for. Right? And he did it with a good attitude and with a loving concern for his boss. Maybe the increasing darkness in our culture, the growing compromise among professing Christians is getting you down and discouraged. Well, God is still large and in charge. No matter what others do on this earth, the Most High God is ruling in the heavens. Now, I will grant you that most of us in this room this morning know these things. The question is, do you and I show them with a submissive heart to the sovereignty of God? Okay? First implication. Second implication is this. There will be a reckoning for the proud who refuse to bend the knee before the King of Heaven. A day of reckoning is coming. It's called the Day of the Lord. People who are too proud to bend their knee before their Creator today and seek His forgiveness will one day have a reckoning. People who are hurting, broken, and in bondage. See, here's the heartbreaking reality. There are people who don't know God, who are hurting, they are broken, they are in bondage to sin, but they are too proud to bend the knee before the God who is willing to heal, repair, and deliver them from their bondage. Right? And those that refuse that... Here, pride is picking a fight with God that you are destined to lose every time. And the sad thing is, some will lose it for all eternity. Wow. You see, there's coming a day that's called the day of the Lord. And the Bible says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 16, we have this frightening picture of God allowing His wrath to be poured on the unbelieving on this planet. Hell is literally unleashed. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give Him glory. This is the basic problem of human nature. Now that's bad news. And next week in Daniel 5, we'll see how swiftly that judgment can fall. But there's good news today in this story. And here's the third point. This is restoring. The fact that God is large and in charge is restoring to those who do humble themselves before the King of Heaven. Listen, take heart from the example of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a slow learner but he did finally humble himself. Amen? Also, all he had to do, this is what's the beauty of it, is when you're really humbled, things get real simple. I can't, you can. I'm not God, you are God. And you know, all, all he had to do as this beast, even a beast in the field, all he had to do was raise his eyes to heaven because that reflected his heart. And that's what God's looking at. He just raised his eyes. He didn't have to jump through hoops. He didn't have to earn God's forgiveness. He didn't have to work it up. He didn't have to get better for a while, and then God said, okay, no. He just lifted in humility. 
he lifted his eyes up and boom, his reason returned to him. Wow. Wow. You see, the King of Heaven is sovereign over all things. I, at the beginning of this message, I read a lot about the absolute freedom of God, and that freaks Americans out. Okay, and that freaks American Christians out. But I'm telling you what, it's okay to have an absolutely sovereign, absolutely free God when He's compassionate and merciful and loving. And so, the King of Heaven is sovereign over all things, but the good news is this, He's merciful to all peoples, even the likes of Nebuchadnezzar. And don't forget, that the Most High God repeated these dreams to him again and again. And do you realize right now in the area of Iraq, Muslims are having dreams of warning from the Most High God to repent and come to know Jesus Christ? That's happening all over this very same area because the very same Most High God rules over Iran, Iraq, and the Middle East, and He has a heart of compassion for the people of the world, but there needs to be Daniel sent. Amen? Because God doesn't save people through dreams. Do you see? He didn't save Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. He sent Daniel. He sent Daniel. You see, the Most High God is still giving repeated dreams. The Most High God waited an entire year for him to repent. And the Most High God limited his judgment to merely seven years. It could have been eternity. And perhaps it was. And this whole chapter is written in Aramaic, the language of the peoples of the earth, so that they might know that there is a God who is large and in charge but has long-suffering mercy for all peoples. Isn't this good? Well, here's the final thing. We must close. The fourth implication that our God is large and in charge is this. This is redeeming. This is redeeming for those who humbly receive the servant king, who humbled himself on earth to save sinners and now reigns over all things in heaven. Because here's the reality. As a fallen sinner, if you will humble yourself before the King of Heaven, Jesus of Nazareth, who humbled Himself to become a sovereign Savior of all peoples, if you'll do that today, you can be saved for eternity. Now, one of the big questions about this chapter is, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? And I would put forth to you, and, th and there's disagreement, you know, there's, there's room for opinions on this, so I just want you to know, I'm now sharing mine. I do not think he was saved. Because here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the dangerous thing. You can have powerful encounters with the sovereign God and still not ex ask Him for salvation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar affirmed his sovereignty, but Nebuchadnezzar ne never said to Yahweh what he said to Marduk on the pavement of those stones. May you give me eternal life. He had more trust in Marduk than he ever demonstrated in the true God. But you know what? If we get to heaven and Neb is there, I'm going to be pumped. Okay? And I'm going to say, tell me about those seven years. I'm not going to be sad. I'm not going to be disappointed. I want all people in heaven. But the reality is this. There's a condition. And you can't just have experiences. There's probably not a person in this room that couldn't tell about a time where God's sovereignty kicked through 
and did something great in your life. But that won't save you. You realize he's large and in charge. And you realize there's nothing that I could ever do to gain his acceptance. And I realize that what I need to do, I need someone to come down here to do. And the king of the universe asked his son to come and humble himself and become a man to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we crucify him and we spit upon him and he takes it. Because he's humble of heart. He's humble of heart. And he rose again. Because he became obedient and humbled himself, God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue confess and every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. The only question is this. Will you bow before it's too late? Or will you bow when it's too late? Because everybody's going to bow. So I beg you this morning, and I give you the invitation of the one who is humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. With your heads bowed, uh, I, I want you to really humble your heart and see what God is saying to you this morning. Jesus is the all-powerful king, and yet he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of a cross death for you. And the way we know that he is large and in charge is he conquered our greatest enemy. He conquered death by raising again from the dead. And he's seated at the right hand, and right now this morning, he'll grant anyone in this room eternal life if you'll simply come and do what Nebuchadnezzar did, lift your eyes to heaven, but do something that I think Nebuchadnezzar never did, ask him, ask him to forgive you of your sins and create in you a new heart, a heart to follow him, to obey him, and to not just momentarily say, boy, God's great but say, God is my great and gracious Savior. Father, I pray that we will do business with you. And those of us that are born again, we will fresh humble ourselves, recognizing that you're sovereign over this increasing chaos. And that, God, we don't have to get ramped up. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to get militant. And we don't have to be obnoxious because you are large and in charge over all things as the musicians play as they sing give your heart humble it before the lord